It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. You've heard the saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You might already believe that history matters, but how much time have you spent really thinking about why it matters? Margaret Bendroth has spent a good deal of her life trying to remember and trying to help others remember the past. She is director of the Congregational Library in Boston, Massachusetts, and a historian of American religion. In this episode, we're talking about her short but stunning book, The Spiritual Practice of Remembering. If you like what you're hearing, or if you have a question or comment about the Maxwell Institute podcast, you can reach me at mipodcast at byu.edu. And thanks for listening. Margaret Bendroth, welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast. Thank you. And I'm told that your friends call you Peggy. Can I do the same? I have always been called Peggy. (laughs) Great. We're talking today about a book that you wrote called The Spiritual Practice of Remembering. And to give people a sense of your background, you're director of the Congregational Library and Archives in Boston. So I imagine as the director, you're prepared to give a little tour guide's pitch for that institution. Let's hear it. Absolutely. Thank you. Someone said it's a shameless plug. Yes. um, But the Congregational Library and Archives was founded in 1853, and it is kind of, for Congregationalists, it's their memory bank. It's their repository. So for Congregationalists, that's four centuries or more of records that we maintain. And of course, these are not just New England, it's all over the country, actually all over the world, because Congregational, uh, we have a lot of missionary records and so forth. So it's a really interesting, eclectic, odd interesting collection. What would you say the strangest thing in the collection is? <laughs> yeah. Do you have any just... Oh, this... well, let's see, we found a machete back <laughs> in the stacks. When Did I... it just fall out of a manila folder? That's what I'm picturing. It's yeah, like in an archive. No, like... <laughs> it was a little more threatening than that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the library was, over time, when and especially when I got there, it had become kind of a pastor's library. Mm. And people apparently donated their libraries when they retired. So, you know, we had a lot of real estate in Florida information that you wouldn't expect in a denominational archive and all kinds of really odd. I think one of my favorite, and some of this is a little bit of hearsay, but um, we had something about missionaries to Turkey that was cataloged under Thanksgiving. And then my other favorite is that we had a, well, Turkey. Um, a book called I, Yahweh. It was a novel written. It was like God's autobiography or anyway, but it was actually in the biography section. Okay. <laughs> I guess <laughs> under why. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's a really quirky, interesting place, but we have one of the uh, few Indian Bibles written, translated in 1689 mm. in Algonquin. So, you know, really wonderful, amazing things that I keep discovering all the time. And in your book, The Spiritual Practice of Remembering, one of the things you say at the beginning is that you say, my task is to remind people that they're part of a much larger story. It sounds like you're kind of a professional reminder. <laughs> I try to be. I try to be because I think it's very easy for particularly people in churches who have so much you know, daily business to take care of, so many pressing concerns, so many things going on in the world— 
to forget that, you know, they had ancestors and that they owe everything to those ancestors. And many of the churches that we deal with are, you know, older than most American institutions, a 300 400 almost years old, some of these. So they have a lot of ancestors. But, you know, you just get caught up in what's the sermon topic and what did Mrs. McGillicuddy do? And you forget that you're part of a story and part of a much larger story of Congregationalists and of Americans. And part of telling that story, you actually travel around to some of these churches in New England. And at one of these, you were telling the story of a famous reverend from so long ago, this stern, intimidating man dressed all in black. And you describe him walking down the aisle that he was holding a large tricorn hat. And then somebody in the group says, oh, hey, there it is. And the, the hat was sitting over there. Yeah. I mean, people may not remember the story, but they keep the darndest things. And this particular church, that frightening reverend in question, his portrait is in the reading room in the library. So I see it every day. And he's not the kind to suffer fools gladly. He was very well known. We have a lot of his books in the library too. But And he was a little guy. And these people had somehow kept the tricorn hat and put it in a plexiglass box and it was sitting there right underneath a window so it was you know as i said in the book baking to death <laughs> and and it was lovely it was kind of cool that they had it but what particular meaning or purpose did that have they asked me if i wanted to take it back to the library like we're not a history of haberdashery yeah. <laughs> you know we don't need I was hats. hoping you would drop haberdashery when this was coming <laughs> so good but you start your book out with that anecdote mm-hmm. what did that symbolize in terms of how your book begins it was just to me you know so a lot of what I began to realize as I was working at the library, thinking about this, encountering people, is that we're of two minds about the past. Everybody, you know, it's a kind of a cliche that Americans are amnesiacs. We're all about new and improved. We like we forget the past. We we're always moving on to the next. You know, we're kind of a historyless culture. And compared to a lot of the world, particularly Europe, I suppose we are. But on the other hand, you see these people are keeping this hat. They got a box to put the hat in. They look at it every since. So there's something that it's almost kind of in many cases, you can say that people are obsessed with the past, that, you know, we have the History Channel, we have theme parks, we have reenactors, we have people who just want to know everything about the past. And, you know, on the one hand, we don't value it. On the other hand, we're just terrified of losing it. So to me, that means that we're just confused. We don't know what to do with it. So we keep things because somehow they might have a meaning that will become clear to us. You ask, why hold on to anything? And as I was reading this book, I was thinking about this Netflix series with Marie Kondo. Have you heard about Well, my daughter is telling me about this. This whole thing is like, she's basically asking people to declutter their lives and just get rid of things that don't spark joy. And so... (laughs) How do you react to that? Like, just get rid of stuff. Because you talk about there's a tension there of wanting to hold on to stuff, but also maybe disregarding stuff. Me personally, I would live in a cardboard box very happily, but I don't like a lot of stuff, but the rest of my family does, so there I am. But I also work in a historical repository And I'm horrified at the things. And as a historian, I've worked with collections that people rescued from the trash. So a lot of things that 
might be considered useless trash today to a future generation of researchers or scholars or human beings would be pricelessly important and informative. You never quite know. So I have piles of journals that I've kept since I was in high school, and I Part of me, well, maybe a future generation will put these in an archive, or you know, and then it's like, oh, horrors! I need to burn them. You know, the yeah. first uh, <laughs> don't read the stuff. I, I, yeah. Yes, absolutely. There's an informational aspect to old artifacts, like they can tell us stuff about the past, but you also talk about a spiritual dimension mm-hmm. to these things, a, a sort of awe, a mystery. Talk about that. Yeah. We take confirmation classes, youth groups. They come visit the library. And sometimes if they're attentive, I've taken them up to our rare book room and I have pulled out a book and showed it to them. You know, like we have a copy of a Geneva Bible. This is what the pilgrims read in their late 1500s. These were published in England. And this particular Geneva Bible, there's an inscription on it, handwriting, that says this was owned by a sailor who fought with Admiral Nelson at the Battle of, not Trafalgar, it was one of these other battles. This Bible went through that. And you think of a lot of these other rare books, of the countless hands that have held them, that found meaning in these pages, that lives were changed, or they became angry or enlightened. But these books are just objects, like most kind of sacred objects, they look like just an object. But there's a world of meaning, especially with something that's very old. And every once in a while, I'll take a high school student group up there, and some of them are just kind of staring around or waiting for me to stop talking. But every (laughs) once in a while, there is a kid that just you can see mm-hmm. their sense of awe. You know, so which this is object to, becomes a time machine. It's like this is in, in some ways a holy object. Mm-hmm. It's a time machine. You say, and what makes it holy? Why that word? That's what I'm really curious about. Is like what's is the holiness the human connection and the the sense of because it makes you feel small but also connected at yeah, the same time. Yeah, that's what Maybe? holy things do, don't they? I mean, they connect you to something larger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And they connect you to other people. As I thought about it, in a way, you just have the sense of this multitude of people over time standing around this book. I mean, I I have a vivid imagination sometimes, but that it's not like the book has any power to heal the sick or something, but it gives you a sense of the invisible beyond us that we can't see that, that is affecting us. And that invisible beyond us, we don't live... Often, I, I don't live often with that right in mind. I'm in the present yep. moment. I try to be or looking toward the future. And your first chapter in the book is called Stranded in the Present. Mm-hmm. And it's inviting people to wake up to a memory problem. And on the one hand, you say that people can be really dismissive about the past, like it's old news. But on the other hand, we're also in a culture that's obsessed with memory keeping. Mm-hmm. We, there are museums for wars and art and science. And there's also museums for like Tupperware and baseball cards. So we seem eager to forget and move on to the next thing, but also kind of terrified of losing the yeah. past or at least nostalgically drawn to it. Right. What yeah. do you make of those extremes that we wrestle with? I mean, to me, that means paralysis. It's like people who are hoarders that you see on these television shows. They're obsessively keeping stuff in the event that something might be important. They just don't know. And so in some ways, I think it discourages people from really wanting to engage with the past 
as adults. You know, I see a lot of churches, especially in New England, where this is the way they did it, and they've always done it. They're old Yankees, and it's not going to change. Or we could never change the communion silver or the order of worship or the picture in the bulletin because, and you think, because why? You think your ancestors would be angry at you? I mean, there is a sense, you know, (laughs) that we'll offend them if we put our archives in a library instead of keeping them in the church basement. Mm. And I think you're living in this kind of abstract fear of what they might think about you when I think they'd be overjoyed Mm. if you put their records in an archive so they could be saved. And part of that you suggest in this chapter is that we think of ourselves as modern. And I think the irony is that like modernity, I hadn't really thought much about that concept, but reading this book points out that this is an idea that goes back to fifth century Rome, right? (laughs) They became modern. What did that mean to them back then? It's the idea that there is such a thing as a clean slate, that you can start new, that you can in some ways free yourself from what's old. And that's really the essence of the world that we, especially I think we as Americans, that think that we literally believe that we started the human history over with this country. Yeah. And you never really do. And and you see the rise of individualism Mm -hmm. in the United States Mm -hmm. and and self-expression today carries a weight that it didn't before. But you also say in some ways we're kind of less free than we were in the past. Yes. Yeah. And so I see modernity as two ways, you know, that in some ways it's all about self-expression, that I am free of tradition and I can decide what I want to do with my life. But yet, you know, we live in a world that is governed by huge institutions, huge structures, advertising, all kinds of rules that our ancestors could not have even begun to fathom. And my favorite metaphor for this is the amusement park. And my apologies to anyone out there who loves Disney World. I do. I do. I, I do love I, Disneyland. Yeah, this part was a struggle for me to read this, but please I, go on. I know. My editor wanted me to take it out of it. There was a wonderful book that I used to assign to students. It was called Amusing the Million. And he showed pictures of people at Coney Island in the late 19th century. And you would go to Coney Island to the beach and you'd frolic and you would play. And, you know, every day you do something different or everybody there was enjoying the beach in a different way. And then they built the amusement park at Coney Island. Well, everybody experiences a roller coaster the exact same way. You're going at the same speed, you're having the same experience, the same thrill, and it can be repeated over and over and over. It's maybe a lot more fun in some ways than just frolicking on a beach. It's pretty exciting, but it's predetermined for you. And so you're not as free as you think you are really are. Another thing you mentioned in this chapter is that we've become stranded in the present tense because of the way that we even think about time and that Mm -hmm. that has changed the difference between secular and liturgical time. Yes, yeah. No, and this is what really interested me, just doing a little bit exploring as I was working on this project and another project about how we conceive of time and even the metaphors that we use. We certainly think of time as a commodity. You can use it up, you can waste it, you can save it, just like money. But we also have this idea that time is a line and it started at one point and you're always moving forward or probably modern people would say upward on the line. And so anything that happened before us is 
back there or mm-hmm. behind us. I mean, it's really interesting when you realize how much these kind of mental pictures and mental images of time determine the way that we act and think about people in the past, that somehow it was darker then, or you know, they weren't as close to the light as we were, they didn't know as much, and that we have kind of ascended the ladder and we know more. The idea of liturgical time, it's kind of a complex idea, but historians will point out that this is how, particularly in the Middle Ages, before the kind of modernity set in, you see these Renaissance or medieval paintings of the nativity. And there's a guy or a woman in 15th, 16th century dress, like, it's just standing there, you know, kind of casually observing the manger. You think, what in the world? Yeah, well, they didn't wear that it, back then. We have yeah. this strong sense of anachronism, that these yeah. two things cannot be with each other. But when you think of, say, the Christian sacrament of Holy Communion or the Jewish Seder or any kind of liturgical cycle, you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over. You are reenacting, and when you are in that moment, you are kind of in the same moment as everyone else who has ever enacted that ritual. You yeah, know, time kind of collapses. Time in collapses, that, yeah. yeah. And it gives you a different outlook on life, right? It sort of pauses, it slows things down because time, especially right now, seems to just be moving, moving, moving. Yeah. And we've got the next appointment and we've got our yeah. calendar that we're following and all of this. But but these liturgical cycles seem to, to pause time. They should. One of my favorite writers, mystic Evelyn Underhill, calls it the leisure of eternity. I love that phrase. We are creatures of eternity. And so that's outside of time. So there's a part of us that maybe in this kind of mortal coil, touch that a little bit. Okay, so when we're thinking about the past, there's a thinker and writer, John Hodgman, who's talked about nostalgia as kind of possibly being a toxic impulse. He thinks of nostalgia as a false representation of Mm -hmm. the past and that people can use thinking about history in a way that takes us out of the present or judges the present or what what do you think about nostalgia as possibly being toxic that way how would you respond to that yeah i mean i'm a little bit torn about that because i think you know, it's different than memory like nostalgia is different than memory it can be very sentimentalized and oh i want to dress like a, a civil war reenactor and kind of enter that world i think that I think the root of the word for nostalgia is homesickness yeah and so i wouldn't disparage that. We have every right to feel homesick for certain aspects of the past. And, you know, to me, people in my tradition in the congregational churches, Lord help them, they love to dress up like pilgrims. I don't think Lutherans dress up like Martin Luther. See, Latter-day Saints do this like pioneers. Oh. So we don't go as far back, okay. but we do the same sort of well, reenactments. Well, there it is. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, they everybody wants the hats with the buckles and they dress up <laughs> For certain Sundays, like, did hats really have buckles? I don't Is that something that like know. elementary school teachers came up with? Were there cornucopias that had fruit in them? I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, I, you know, and there's a part of you that just says, "Well, okay." But as you said, maybe the hat didn't have buckles. Yeah. Or, you know, 
it can trivialize these people yeah. as if they're cartoon characters yeah. that we can become. I think nostalgia can miss the nuance of the past. I think Absolutely. it's pr- probably what John Hodgman would yes. say is like when we use the past as a tool to kind of do whatever we want today. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm more offended when people use the past for advertising. Yeah. You know, like I said, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln selling President's, Lincoln's. President's Day weekend is always a yeah. hardship for me because they're hawking cars. I mean, yeah. it's like, what culture does that to their ancestors? <laughs> yes. That's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> me and Disney World and President's Day. <laughs> We're talking today with Peggy Bendross. She's executive director of the Congregational Library and Archives in Boston, Massachusetts. So, Peggy, in your next chapter, it's called Past Imperfect, and you introduce us to some long-forgotten novels that were written around the turn of the 20th century, where the protagonist is usually a religious leader who loses their faith as they look back on history. Like, Mm -hmm. learning about history causes a faith crisis for them. Not in the sense that they look back and see misbehavior or see things that challenge what Mm -hmm. they believed, but that just seeing any change over time caused a problem for them. Why do you think these popular novels show history as an enemy to religious faith? I find it really startling because there's a whole turn of the 19th into the 20th century was a time when people use the phrase spiritual crisis, when people were having, you know, maybe the Bible was not true or, you know, all this kind of challenge to uh, religion at this time. I was really surprised to be rereading these books and realizing it wasn't theology or, you know, whether Jesus was real or had actually lived. It was just understanding the vastness of the past and how different it was. And so one of my favorite book is called The Damnation of Theron Ware, and he is a Methodist minister. He decides that he needs to earn a little pocket change. He's going to write a a book about Abraham, and he's going to sell it in the Methodist book concern, and he's going to, you know, his wife will be happy. And so he begins to do some research, and very unsettling, and then he kind of falls in with these sophisticates who unsettle him even more. But what really bothered him, and it's kind of hard to grasp this, he said that he realized that Abraham was a Chaldean. And I think by that, he had this sense that Abraham was kind of like his jolly old uncle or a grandfather or somebody that if he ever met Abraham, you say, oh, hi, Theron, you know, yeah. we're best friends. He could show up at church we with him and totally put his arm around him. We totally understand each other, and our worlds overlap, and we all believe and think the same. A Chaldean is a kind of a foreign, scary, unknown, threatening world that this biblical figure came from. And it all kind of started crashing down for him because of that. Yeah, the past became too foreign for this character yes, and, and for yeah. other characters like him. And you say that becoming more aware of this history, people see humans shaping the world and they see religious development. Mm-hmm. And rather than seeing that as sort of an ongoing negotiation between humans and God, they see that as erasing God from yes, the picture exactly. entirely. Yeah. And this is, you know, we call it historicism, that everything that we see in the world today, every bit of change or technology, or it was all a process of history. It all happened over time. There was nothing miraculous about it. It was just one change upon another, upon another, upon another, that human beings instituted that created the world. And in a lot of ways, yeah, you know, things don't 
appear by magic, but it's a deeply, I think, secular way of understanding where we are now. You know, there's no, as you say, no magic or mystery or higher Mm -hmm. meaning to anything. The strangeness is also how you point out that that secularism didn't just exist on the part of people who didn't believe in God and were sort of doing biblical history to discredit the Bible or believe to discredit the Bible, but also apologists who came forward to defend the Bible were arguing on the same secular grounds. Yeah, I think people really, especially, you know, 100 years ago or more, and even still, struggle to, I mean, the Bible is a, a book of stories about people in the past. And that means that they lived in worlds that we will never completely understand. And that you can't simply appropriate them for your own life lessons, that there's something about them that you just kind of have to let them. I'm not explaining this very well, but you know, we do have to realize that there is that the Bible is, to my mind, a product of history. It was written at a by people who lived in a particular time and space and, you know, saw the world in that particular time and space. And I need to respect that. Mm. Doesn't mean that I distrust it. I think in some ways it's all the more meaningful because it, it still has meaning and value hundreds, thousands of years later. So as a historian yourself, did you ever have to wrestle with something like Theron Ware did, where you encountered things that were corrosive to your faith? or like how, Oh, absolutely. How the, yeah. One of the reasons why I probably wrote this book, because I think that, especially studying religious history, as I chose to do, but history in general, it can be very frightening and demoralizing. And I remember teaching a class in uh, church history, and I taught in this small urban seminary in Boston. And my students were not from, you know, academic backgrounds. They were working pastors and many in poor neighborhoods. But, you know, I was just kind of going through the whole early history of the church, blah, 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 as I had learned it. Um, (laughs) And a student came up after class crying, crying, because of all the hardship and death and destruction and wrongness and terrible things that people had done to each other. And you really have to come to terms with the fact that wrong was done. There are no perfect institutions, and even people that you admire, I mean, many of us have to deal with this all the time, people that you admire and you know lived good lives were still compromised, and that just terrible, unimaginable things happen, Hmm. and they get excused. You know, I still wrestle with that, and I think we all should. It makes me more humble than ever about any pronouncements I make or any surety I have about you know, my own righteousness. There's a moment in this chapter where you stack two different experiences next to each other. There's Easter in Seville, Spain, mm-hmm. and then the death of a friend. Mm-hmm. And you put this in the context of witnesses. I wanted you to kind of unpack that or explain that a little bit. I was in Seville for Holy Week, Santa Semana. And in, in Seville and Holy Week, it is about as odd for a Dutch Calvinist like myself as anything can possibly be. But they have regular parades through the streets, and they do this in many, you know, Latino countries, of Jesus in, you know, different episodes in the, the of the Passion Week. And people are crying, they're throwing flowers, there's loud music, uh, and it's it's very odd. But I remember standing very early on Easter morning in Seville, waiting for the procession to begin with all kinds of people that I would never identify with. And people, you know, to me as an American, they look like jaded, you know, Europeans smoking and laughing and you don't do this when you're, you know, in, in any kind of a religious setting. 
And then when the procession came, there was this hushed respect that they knew that something really awe-inspiring and special was happening, and they regarded that. You know, it's just this experience of waiting for Jesus with all these people that were a mystery to me. The other experience was a friend of mine died very tragically, and I just ended up in the emergency room, and I met people from other parts of her life, other friends who had known, I knew her as a fellow scholar, but uh, friends who'd rock climbed with her and traveled with her. And I mean, she was just this amazing person. And I knew her as I kind of saw Jesus in a way that I could not have imagined just on my own. All of a sudden, I knew her better after she died than I had known her in life because I was aware you know, that there is a bigger story to this, that there is more to this, that I did not have the corner on all of the information and all of the knowledge. I liked how you tied that into the idea of history, because as people look at Mm -hmm. the history of different religions or even their own religion, Mm -hmm. will come to see people worshiping or viewing Jesus, for example, in different ways Mm -hmm. over time. And rather than being unsettled by that, you kind of compared it to your friend who died and saying, you met all these other people that saw her in all these different ways, and that could actually enrich it was more her. true than ever. Yeah. You know, it was more true than ever. I I certainly didn't need to see Jesus. I mean, I'd never thought of Jesus, you know, bleeding and nailed to the cross and all, you know, and all this other kind of uh, very deeply Catholic piety that I found oddly moving, but would never have occurred to me to think about Jesus that way. But now, I mean, I have a sense of the sufferings of Christ that you know, my nice, clean Dutch Calvinist church kind of glossed over. So we can find inspiration from the past. It's not just dealing with the difficulties and the unexpected things that trouble faith, but Mm -hmm. also the past can be very inspirational and insightful and engaging Mm -hmm. and beautiful. With all of that in mind, how do we prevent our faith or our view of history from becoming just kind of muddy everythingism? Like, can we judge the past? There is a sense, especially when you start studying history. And I remember my first kind of major research project in graduate school was on uh, slavery in the Bible. You know, so I was reading arguments, pro-slavery arguments that were using the Bible. Like the Mark of Cain? Or oh, the, you name it. I mean, it was all revelation to me. Slaves and, should obey their masters. Oh, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, you really can't find these things. Yeah. And so... And you, you hadn't really encountered that until no. then. And you want to say, well... All around them, they saw slaves, and they grew up in a slave culture, so they would have not questioned this. But then you think, really? They're still human. They Maybe they should have. Yeah, why you, didn't they? You know, you want to say, well, it's a different time, a different culture, they had different standards. Who are we to judge? But yet, you know, on the other hand, absolutely, we have moral clarity about slavery that they did not have, because we've seen the full cost of it hundreds of years later. I'm sure that our descendants are going to have moral clarity about things that we do not see right now. We should just get ready for that. You talked about your husband, who's a congregational pastor, coming to you and asking for examples, historical examples Mm -hmm. for his Sunday sermons. Like He's looking to inspire people and to make these devotional points. And so you say, oh, yeah, there's this story. But then you say you would stack it so full of qualifications that he would kind of be like, oh, okay, wait. Go away, yeah. (laughs) So what about the spiritual significance of the past? How do we do that without leaving out? Because I'm not criticizing the qualifications, right? I think those matter. But at the same time, I'm also sympathetic to your husband, who's saying, I'm just trying to inspire somebody. Yeah, I mean, 
mean, I think you think of the past the way that you do as the present. I mean, I don't think there's a person alive that would be 100% inspirational. I mean, we're all kind of a mixed bag, and the past is a mixed bag. But we have to come to the past like grown-ups. Where you can find inspiration, you can find inspiration. You fully recognize that it's as morally complex back then as the times are now. And so congregationalists are all gearing up for the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims arriving next year. As I tell people, it's Christmas and New Year's and Halloween and Fourth of July all rolled up into one, 400 years of this tradition. Well, I think everyone knows that not everyone is cheering that event. If you're a Native American, you it's a day of mourning, Thanksgiving is. And so what do we say at the Congregational Library about this historical event? Many people love the pilgrims there. You know, Mayflower descendants, it's fabulous. I don't want to take away from that either. I'm not there to shake a finger at people. But what we say is that we're historically responsible and that we want to make sure people know the story, all the story, and then say, how does that inform me? How does that caution me? How does that teach me? How does that make my world larger? I just think of history as kind of a armchair travel, you know, because people who travel and live in foreign countries, they're different. They're transformed. They're decentered. They realize my way is not the right way. For those of us, <laughs> you know, don't travel extensively, try history because you are really trying to understand a world with a different point of view, sometimes very different, sometimes just slightly different. And it really can help you identify things about your own ways of thinking, the judgments that you make that you would have taken for granted otherwise. This reminds me of a moment in the Book of Mormon where it's this record of history and it's directed to future readers preaching, really. Mm -hmm. It's preaching. But there comes this moment where one of the prophetic writers in the book stops and says, as you're reading this, you're going to see problems. You're going to see us really make mistakes. And rather than condemning us for that, be thankful to God for being able to see our example yeah. and being wiser than we were. So they know, occupy this double yeah. space of like yeah. preaching to the future, but also almost asking forgiveness and saying, be better than what we Well, we were. should all, we should all adopt that. Yeah, yeah. I think plenty of people can remember, Peggy, a history class in high school or, or junior high that maybe wasn't very inspiring. Maybe they had a, a teacher who was kind of just listing chronology yeah. and you had to memorize dates and stuff. But you say that's probably not why a lot of people today aren't interested in history, one of the things you suggest is that it's hard to be engaged with history because history brings a sense of moral obligation. Mm -hmm. What did you have in mind by that? I actually looked up the word remember. It used a concordance. And the times in the Bible, you know, the word remember is used. And did a little bit of fiddling around and figuring out. And so when the Bible uses the word remember, you know, when Christ says remember and believe or whatever, we remember Christ. It's not just, as you said, nostalgia. Oh, it was so great. You know, if I could only live in the first century, that's not what it means. Memory or remembering in the Bible, you know, when you think of all the instances in the Hebrew scriptures, it's putting yourself in solidarity with all the others that you cannot see. That it's not just a neck up exercise. It's re-upping your commitment. Every time you remember and believe, you're saying, 
yes, and this is how I'm going to live. There's no, the way that the word is used in the Bible, there's no difference between remembering in your brain and your moral commitments, as you said. It's, your, you know, it's an act of solidarity. You also talk about how, like, America as a country embraces its history. You know, there's the, we want to think about the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the New Deal. We have all these mm-hmm. stories. But at the same time, you say America has a sort of history-lessness. Yes. Uh, that's going to sound surprising to some people. I think that's probably connected to that moral obligation idea. We just recently celebrated Columbus Day. Mm-hmm. Some people call it Indigenous yeah. People's Day. So there's this battle going mm-hmm. on. Like people want to recognize history, but what part of it do you want to look at? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, of course. And you know, and I live in Boston, and so you stumble over history. You walk on it, <laughs> literally walk on it every day, and you come up against some pretty horrible, ugly things, including slavery. And Peter Faneuil, who donated the money for Faneuil Hall, the great now tourist destination, was an old market in the 18th century. Well, lo and behold, he owns slaves. So do we take his name off of Faneuil Hall, you know, to punish him or not allow him to have that? I mean, this is our conversations that we're having over and over right. and over. Not put a slaveholder's name in front of people. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you get the sense that, yeah, you don't want to be uplifting someone who got rich by the enforced labor of others by no means. But erasing that, is that really going to solve the problem? Yeah, it, I mean, that's connected to like the war monuments that were created yeah. long after the war. That and, You know, you look at why they were created. They For were, nefarious purposes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so mm-hmm. they're competing ideas about should we just get rid of them altogether? Should we put them in a museum? Should yeah. we build monuments alongside them yep. to give contextualization? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are different options in different... And I'm so glad we're having that conversation. Yeah. It's high time. Yeah, I hope it continues. So you compare a group of people you call traditionalists mm-hmm. to anti-traditionalists. And traditionalists, you say, believe the past has set up all the rules. Mm-hmm. It's our job mm-hmm. to follow them. We have tradition. Our elders were wise. We will follow in their footsteps. Anti-traditionalists or the opposite of that, they want to throw off the shackles of arbitrary obligation Mm -hmm. is the wonderful Mm -hmm. quote you use, to experiment. They want to come up with something new. Mm -hmm. Where do you find yourself on that sliding scale? Because I I get the sense that you wouldn't fall on either side of that polarity. It's funny because I I think in a lot of ways, because I'm a historian, I would side with the traditionalists and say that old things have value and they're there for a reason and we need to respect them. But, you know, to be very honest, I'm an American, and I deeply resent someone making judgments about what I should do or be or say or look like without my say-so. But at least I recognize that those two competing values are always going at work in my life. And you talked about slavery in the Bible, for example. I mean, people made traditionalist arguments for that, and that's something that you don't like. Absolutely. As a sort of traditionalist with a twist, Mm -hmm. how do you wrap your head around that? I mean, going back to that project, what I learned, I said, well, if you take Abraham had slaves, blah, 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 you know, if you look at the Bible as this kind of document that was just cast in stone and just... There's no meaning, you know, changing meaning, or I mean, if the words are just literally there and you just take it or leave it, okay, then I guess you can justify slavery. But the abolitionists, of course, had their own arguments from the Bible, and they were profoundly moving to me. They said, well, yes, maybe there was slavery. 
history, but there was a new era that was inaugurated in Christ, and the idea that even Paul could say there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, that there is this sense that maybe that is not right. And it was these abolitionists who were living in the 19th century, and, you know, let's just say it, they had been steeped in the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Age of Reason, you know, that everybody, this kind of emerging idea of human rights, which is not a biblical, it's a modern idea, but with that lens of understanding human rights, they were able to say, well... I can see the scripture in a fresh way and the power of how it liberates people. So they were using a modern idea and they were bringing that to bring new light out of the ancient word. And so that we do not have to just empty our heads of the times that we live in. Sometimes the times that we live in give us new insights that the old older generations do not have. Yeah, your book, The Spiritual Practice of Remembering, is asking us to engage in an ongoing conversation mm-hmm. with the dead. Included. Yes. <laughs> and, and your next chapter talks about that, the communion of saints. You mm-hmm. talk about how the things that we do with death, how we bury people, how we, how we think of burial, how we think of death, changed during the Protestant Reformation, and people's yeah. relationship with the dead changed during mm-hmm. that time in significant ways yes, that yeah. affects how we engage with the past. Yeah. How so? I mean, you, you know, I, I just think, you know, that uh, Martin Luther, you know, was— campaigning against indulgences and this idea that you could pray for the dead and, and, you know, buy these indulgences and that would get them years out of purgatory, you know, and we all say, what a wrongheaded idea. But, you know, the underlying idea is that the living still owe something to the dead and that there is this eternal connection, you know, and so that these people are not dead and gone. They're still in your life, and you can help them, or they can help you. Um, and uh, and so, you know, John Calvin, you know, wanted to be buried, and no one told of where his, his grave was, because he just didn't want people to think about death or ceremony or ritual, anything like that. And, you know... No pilgrimage, no, yeah. No, yeah, or, you know, not even mourning. Hmm. You know, the Puritans were, you know, very matter-of-fact, this is... That would show a lack of faith, like the person's exactly. going to be Exactly, yeah. so it doesn't help people to, to just say kind of the, essentially get over it, which is kind of th- almost th- what the Protestants are saying. It's it's what your faith means to you, the living now, in your personal one-on-one relationship with Jesus, not some intermediary or, you know, other ritual. Yeah, that's very, very important. But I, you know, I just had the sense that this is a loss, that we, um, we use the phrase dead and gone. Hmm. Um, and you know, the only way that we speak of the dead is, you know, on Halloween or, ooh, you know, or ghost hunting or something. I, you know, that's just such an impoverished way of thinking about our ancestors. It's funny to hear a Protestant talk about that. You almost <laughs> seem to have a Catholic longing for the oh, communion of saints, right? The communion of saints is I, in the creeds. It is absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was, I think I used the illustration in the book. I was, I, I got fascinated with 19th century um, church anniversary documents. They would start, they started doing this in the 19th century, having big, elaborate church anniversaries, especially in New England. And, um, you know, they would have these celebratory sermons in this one little Presbyterian church in upstate New York. 
And I, I was reading the sermon. I, it was a little pokey place, you could tell. And the pastor was going on about the thousands of people of, of this congregation. And you, huh? <laughs> you, you almost hear the people saying, what? There's and a then, few dozen of us, but okay. <laughs> and then he said, that's how many have passed through these doors. Yeah. And just because they're dead doesn't mean they're not church members, yeah. that they don't, you know, in some way still matter to this congregation. And I think a church has that kind of mystical, you know, sense of on, you know, the link uh, between the living and the dead that, you know, that the rest of the secular world does not need to. That's Peggy Bendroth. She's executive director of the Congregational Library in Boston, Massachusetts, and a historian of American religion. We're talking about her book, The Spiritual Practice of Remembering, but she's written a number of books. They include books like The Last Puritans, Mainline Protestants and the Power of the Past, uh, Growing Up Protestant, Parents, Children, and Mainline Churches. But again, today we're talking about the spiritual practice of remembering. Peggy, your final chapter ties all the threads together from your previous chapters, inviting readers to think of remembering as a spiritual practice. So let's first define that. What is a spiritual practice? <laughs> it's difficult to define, but I, to me a spiritual practice is something that um, takes the ordinary, kind of an ordinary act that is part of your everyday day, your everyday practice, and, you know, imbues it with larger eternal meaning. So a spiritual practice, it's not just like reading the Bible or praying in the morning. It's things like how I wake up. Do I just roll out of bed? Or do I, my first thought is, you know, I welcome this day, you know, that, that God has given me. You know, when I eat a meal, am I just, you know, ingesting calories? Or am I thinking of the people who you know, who made this food or brought it to me or, you know, the, the earth that created, you know, that you always keep these, you know, there can be just regular habits or things that you include in your daily life that keep reminding you of the larger world that you inhabit. Okay, so that's a spiritual practice broadly writ. Mm -hmm. How does memory figure as one? Well, I think, you know, that memory has to be a spiritual practice because, um, we we don't do it normally. We don't have a good cultural vocabulary for remembering that we, you know, easily uh, live. We live in the present. You know, we're we're human beings. And of course, we live in the present. Um, so you know, when I'm when I'm walking to work or I'm you know driving my car, I try to think about who laid out the sidewalk or you know who nailed that board there um they're dead they're gone but you know they were living and breathing and and you know what was happening in their day i just try to enlarge my imagination so that i that i'm not just so focused it's you know, I and I, you know, of course, I live in New England, where you, you know, you're literally bumping into these kinds of things. Well, all in your the book, time. you talk about you look out your window, literally out your window, and <laughs> see the grave of Paul Revere yeah, and this, you know, <laughs> That's at the, a at the Granary blessing. Building yeah, yeah. Cemetery. Yeah. There. yeah, yes. So I have very quiet neighbors, um, <laughs> and of course, it's all there. But you know, in, in some ways, people are visiting these graves every day, and I don't think they're, you know, they're just kind of clicking it off their bucket list. I don't think they're really engaging with. All the you know the 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 years between Paul Revere and us, and yeah. the world that he lived in, and how different it was. They just saw I saw Paul Revere's grave. 
there's a different cemetery down on the other end of Boston Common that that I walked to. So I, I yes. should tell, I was recently in Boston and I went to this, after reading your book, oh, yeah. I went to this cemetery and walked around. But then I went down the other end of Boston Common and there was another cemetery yeah. there. But it was all fenced off and like you couldn't go through yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's where William Billings, I think, is buried. Yeah, yeah. What's the difference between those two? It's interesting to me that they kept keep one of them locked yeah. in. Yeah, well, I mean, there's actually, I think the answer to that is that every time they widened a street in Boston, they had to move dead bodies. Oh, yeah. You know, and so that a lot of the cemeteries, they're so old that, you know, that there's probably not a lot of bones down there anyway because they've all been moved. And I believe that one little one at the edge of the common uh, there was not moved. And it was marked hmm. off so that it would not be moved. But, yeah, yeah it's... Uh, it, yeah, the, it's amazing that those cemeteries still exist within a busy downtown. Yeah, so you say memory is a religious urge. You actually mm-hmm. place it at the heart of religious life through the ages, mm-hmm. not just for Christianity, but Judaism and, and some mm-hmm. other traditions mm-hmm. as well. Yes, yeah. A- Abraham Joshua Heschel says Christianity and Judaism particularly are religions of remembrance, that we are storytellers. I mean, I th- it's, it's not so much just memory, it's that we tell stories, we tell history. Uh, we, you know, we don't just throw abstract theological truths at each other, it's always within a narrative of this happened, then this happened. And that's why this is important, because it was part of this story, and then it led to another story. And so, you know, we're, we are actually doing it. We are actually being people of history when we tell these stories, when we create narratives. Um, but you know, we don't recognize it as such. And I, I'm just calling people to say, this is really the essence of, you know, the historic faith, that it is in time, you know, and that Christ came in time and became a creature of time. Um, that's a, a marvelous, you know, idea, a marvelous thing to remind yourself of. Your book makes a strong case that remembering can be a deeply spiritual practice. Are there any cautions that you would give in thinking of it as a religious practice? Yeah, I mean, I guess that my husband is a minister, and uh, when I give sermons in churches or talk about memory, I say you can feel the pastor is just going, oh, no, (laughs) not that, because church people, I think, can have incredibly long memories about a slight or a mistake or, you know, the pastor's wife walked right by me and didn't say hello. I mean, a minister's wife, and I know how these things work, or, um, uh, you know, that people think that it has to be a certain way or it's wrong. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and a lot of churches think that that's the essence of faith, that it's holding on to, not, you know, certain practices or ways of doing things or a particular portrait or an old building, um, that they can become idols. And it's, you know, they can certainly be means, they can be reminders, they can, you know, like, you know, any of these, they can be holy objects, but they're not an end in themselves. Uh, They can't be, because they're not permanent. As I mentioned before, Peggy, this book is heavily theological, this book, The Spiritual Practice of Remembering, but you've also published other books in the Academy, and 
the norms in the academy for those books are a little bit different. Yes. Can you talk about the difference between writing in this register, which is more devotional, it's still grounded in rigorous scholarship, but your other books, like The Last Puritans, mm-hmm. for example, isn't an exercise in devotion yeah. in the same way. Maybe. Yes, yeah, and it's it's a very different. And and so this book actually came, I was, um, I was working on The Last Puritans, and The Last Puritans, you know, is a lot about how abstract theories of, you know, memory and history and time and religious communities and, um, uh, and you know, how, you know, these ideas of time change over time and just different ways that people deploy the past, as we say. And, you know, it's getting kind of complicated. And, you know, and you're, even though you're kind of a scholar, you're thinking, this is, no one's ever going to read this. It's so complex and it's so abstract. And so for my own sake, as well as, you know, for people that I knew in church communities that my library deals with, I decided to stop work on that other book and see if I could restate those very abstract, technical, theoretical ideas in clear, plain, simple language in a short book that would be practical and useful. And it's hard. It, it was a much, in many ways, a much harder intellectual exercise to do this and to come up with good examples and keep the writing, you know, accessible and to uh, present theories of how time works or, you know, memory that were in, you know, three-syllable words at most. Not because people are stupid, but because you can boil a pretty arcane theoretical point to it means this, mm-hmm. and that's why it's important. And sometimes we hide behind the bigger words. A lot I of think. scholars, I think, can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so you just keep saying the same things over and over. And and I sometimes I think none of us really know what that. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a way of keeping myself honest. Um, and and I you know totally recommend the exercise. And obviously, for a very different audience, it was. Um, frightening for me, you know, Mm. uh, working without a lot of footnotes. It's like, you know, Mm. uh, uh, being on a trapeze without a safety net, Um, being in any way personal. I, you know, I certainly, it's a risk. Yeah, you don't see that in the last Puritan. Scholars don't. Well, and you know, it shouldn't be there. It's not, you know, it's, it's, in some ways, the book, you know, there's a little bit of memoir in it about my own life and about my own experiences. And, you know, there's a part of my brain when I was doing this thing. Don't tell them that. <laughs> it's not going to be on paper forever. But then you think, well, this is, you know, in some ways an act of generosity just to let people into your life even when it's not easy. Would you tie that impulse to your faith at all? Like is your, is your religion informing that need to, to – Oh, it's yes. It's almost like a testifying moment uh, or something. Yeah, maybe that – yeah, I hadn't thought about that way. But, I mean, I tried to do this as a, a, an act of generosity hmm. and, you know – no footnotes, you know, kind of homely, silly stories sometimes uh, that other Taking people might at Disneyland. sneer at. Yeah, I know. I, I have not gotten any hate mail except, oh, except you're the first person that really taken me on that. Um, but uh, you know, so it it it, uh, it it was not something that I would ordinarily want to do. But I think scholars, I think you get to a certain point where you really want to say your truth <laughs> to more people. And I'd just like to say. 
having read the book, it's a really powerful book. Thank I was you. very moved by Thank it. I was very interested. It was a great read, <laughs> but it was also just so challenging in the best ways, making me rethink things and 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 think about the spiritual practice of remembering it. I thought it was really well done. Thanks very much. Yeah, you bet. We're glad to have uh, had you join us here at Brigham Young University. Before we go, I want to mention to people that you gave a lecture to the history department yesterday, and the Maxwell Institute was a co-sponsor of that, so we recorded it. It will be up on our website. In fact, by the time this episode comes out, it will already be there. Right. But if people haven't checked it out already, I wanted you to give a little sneak peek. Like, what's the what's the teaser? What do you want people to get from that lecture? Yeah, so this was, uh, the title of it was uh, New Life from Old Stories, Faith and Scholarship in Anxious Times. And it was... How can people of faith who are scholars, and especially historians, what makes them different? And there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about what makes us different in terms of how we think about the past. But for me, more and more, as I kind of move on in life, it's about how I actually write and how I interact with my colleagues. And, you know, so a lot of this was kind of a a plea for, you know, we need to be clear, we need to be good writers, we need to have fun with what we're doing, we need to be generous with our colleagues. And that's a witness in this day of kind of obfuscation and competition and, you know, a lot of cruelty out Mm. there. You know, so that's kind of a lot of what I tried to say. I enjoyed it. I hope people will check that out if they haven't already. That'll be up on the Maxwell Institute's YouTube channel. That's Margaret Bendroth. She's executive director of the Congregational Library in Boston, Massachusetts, and a historian of American religion. Her book is called The Spiritual Practice of Remembering. It's a short book. I highly recommend checking it out. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Check out Margaret Bendroth's guest lecture on the Maxwell Institute's YouTube channel right now. It was excellent. And now we turn to our review of the month from Apple Podcasts. This one comes from, I kid you not, the name is Poo Pants. <laughs> it says, I'm excited about gospel study for the first time. The thoughtful insights and careful scholarship make me thirst for more. I have a feeling that um, Poo Pants has that, that name attached to their Apple ID, and perhaps they have a kid or something who reviewed a video game or something else. Anyway, thank you for that. Uh, Here's another comment, this one from YouTube, from John Chase. It says, Thank you for providing the podcasts as they offer an excellent way to obtain insights into the brief theological introductions. I'm very thankful there is a Maxwell Institute. Thank you for that, John Chase. I look forward to seeing new reviews pop up in Apple Podcasts or comments on YouTube or Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I hope you're already following the Maxwell Institute. If you're looking for us there, you can find us at BYU Maxwell. We'll talk to you next time on the Maxwell Institute podcast.